Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 133, Sowing the Dragon's Teeth with Eric McGear. Today we're going to explore the changes in the Roman army as they shifted from a defensive to an offensive policy on the Eastern Front. As the title of this show implies, we're going to do this with the help of historian Eric McGear. However, this won't be a straight interview episode. There is a huge amount to talk about that couldn't be included in our conversation, so I will be interrupting from time to time to provide extra information. As a result, this episode is going to be an hour long, and it's also going to function like an end-of-the-century show. It seemed silly to begin describing Byzantine operations in Syria, and then only get round to the mechanics of how the army functioned six months from now. There are some basic paradigms we should establish at the start. The Roman army has been on the defensive for 300 years now. Listeners have often asked for an update on battle tactics. But the reality was that Byzantine strategy was to avoid battle at all costs. Guerrilla warfare had dominated their thinking for generations. When the occasion called for a pitched battle... The tactics used seem to have been similar to those we explored before the rise of the Caliphate. In other words, the cavalry took the lead in assaulting the enemy. They were, after all, the professional soldiers. The infantry, often recruited just for that campaign, were used in support. Because formal engagements were so infrequent... No one wrote down any tweaks of tactics that might give us further insights. By the time new military manuals came to be composed, such as Leo VI's Tactica, a lot of the material was just lifted from earlier works, like Maurice's Strategicon. Its basic demands were still relevant, even if it lacked much contemporary insight. Since the time of Basil I and the war with the Paulicians, the Romans have been seeking out pitched battles again. They've also been conducting sieges and using the mountains to take guerrilla warfare to a new level. This is where the manual On Skirmishing comes in. We've talked about this before. It was commissioned by Nicephorus Phocas, the man who last week in our narrative was put in charge of the army. The purpose of that work was to preserve the methods which the Romans used to defend Anatolia from Arab raids. 
there are references in those pages to the actual victories won over Saif Dola. For example, last week I described to you Leo Focus's brilliant ambush as Saif's men returned home from a successful expedition. Leo seized the high ground, tracked the enemy's movements, blocked their path and surprised them, causing devastation. The Romans had spent two centuries attempting to use the hills and plateau of Anatolia to deflect Arab raids, but since they'd captured Tefriki, Melitene, and Theodosiopolis, the rules of the game had changed. Now the enemy was having to traverse mountains which the Byzantines controlled. And on skirmishing, details the tactics used to inflict maximum damage on the enemy. Today, however, we move forward to the next text which Nicephorus commissioned. The title is the less catchy Presentation and Composition on Warfare of the Lord Nicephorus. It's often referred to by its Latin title, the Preceptor Militaria. In its pages, the author describes the army that was recruited and the tactics used to decisively defeat Saif Adola on his home turf. In other words, this text was put together 20 years from where we are in the narrative now, describing how the Romans destroyed the emirate and pushed their borders to the doors of Aleppo itself. We are hugely indebted to Nicephorus for these texts. They give us unprecedented insight into military affairs. It's believed that the general put these manuals together as a series of notes and distributed them to his subcommanders. He wanted everyone who served under him to be literally on the same page. He knew that it was a tough task to defeat the Arabs, but with proper instruction and discipline, it was possible. Eric McGeer's book, Sowing the Dragon's Teeth, is a study of the changes in Byzantine warfare during the 10th century, and it's a must-read for anyone interested in this period. Let me give you a taste of the interview right now, as Eric talks about the various military manuals which Nicephorus commissioned and inspired, and how they differed from armchair texts like Leo's Tactica. That's very true, um, that uh, up until the beginning of the 10th century, you really have to sift through the, the tactical uh, treatises very carefully to find anything that's of contemporary or, uh, let's say, recent uh, value. But when you get to the, the treatises written at the end of the 10th century, uh, which certainly are uh, drawn from or in some way derivative of the tradition, but to say their contemporaneity and the fact that they're written by soldiers and not by, uh, let's say, um, academics or uh, by the kinds of people who wrote the other um, encyclopedias or collections of tactics. These were real soldiers, and uh, their perspective comes through when they speak of battle. And uh, there are a number of passages in the Percepta which really hit me as descriptions of combat as close as we're likely to get of what it was like to be in one of those battles. You know, the violence they describe and the, uh, the physical give and take as well as the emotional give and take of those battles, I think, have a kind of realness that no other military treatise has, even the Roman ones, I have to say. I've never seen anything quite like that in other military 
uh, say, tactical traditions. Even the, um, the contemporary medieval ones in the Western world don't have that either. That's why these texts are such vital sources. They're written by soldiers for soldiers and describe a very specific type of warfare. They aren't general instruction manuals. They are templates for winning the present war. Let's zero in on that conflict. As you heard last week, Saif successfully restored his border fortresses, Adata, Germanicir, and Samosata. Each lay just to the south of the Taurus Mountains. They guarded the entrance to them from Saif's perspective. This investment indicated that the Emir was serious about continuing the struggle with Rome for the foreseeable future. His next goal would be to capture forts on the road to Melitene and eventually attempt to retake it. The Roman government would not allow this to happen. They had fought very hard to create these safer borders and they were determined to keep them. But more than that, the Romans believed they could beat safe. It had taken them several decades to understand that the caliphate was not going to return in its old form. The Focas family assessed the situation and concluded that they could shut Safe down for good. If he wouldn't accept peace, then they would destroy his power base and force it upon him. In other words, it won't be enough to simply attack those border forts again, because they can be rebuilt. We must capture them, and the cities beyond them, which continue to practice jihad. We must take the fight into Syria and Mesopotamia, and extend the borders of the empire onto Arab soil. This was not necessarily a master plan. If Saif changed his mind and agreed to peace at some point, then a halt could be called. But until then, we must be prepared to conquer. Now this was a massive deal for one very obvious reason. The Romans have very rarely campaigned beyond their own borders since the rise of the Caliphate. If you cast your mind back to pre-Islamic times, the Byzantines would seek battle on enemy territory. Of course, Justinian spent his whole reign doing it, but following him, Maurice launched attacks north of the Danube on the Avars, and across Armenia against Sassanid territory. Heraclius was forced to do the same to win his war with the Persians. But since then, the Romans have stayed at home out of necessity. Only very occasionally did they venture into Syria to raid the Caliphate, and only then during times of Arab civil war. While in the Balkans, they fought most of their battles with the Bulgars on their side of the line. The Byzantine goal remained to avoid pitched battles, so if it had to be done, better it be on familiar territory with short lines of supply and various forts in the rear to protect us. The Battle of Pliska was a classic example of what can go wrong when one takes the fight into lands which the enemy control. Even the recent campaigns in Armenia were essentially conducted with home field advantage. The Romans spent a century courting the princes of the mountains for this reason. 
as we saw at Melitene, imperial troops struggled to capture it in a traditional manner. Actually, besieging a well-fortified city was a struggle. Getting supplies up into the mountains was hard, and the freezing winters made a prolonged siege impossible. It was far easier to give money and titles to a local like Melius and instruct him to terrorize the enemy population until they give in. Of course, recently, John Corcuas did march all the way to Edessa to retrieve the Mandilion. But John knew he would meet little resistance, and specifically wintered in captured cities to overcome supply problems. What Nicephorus was contemplating was something that hadn't been done since Heraclius. He would need to march his armies for hundreds of miles to complete these missions, they would therefore need to be better organized, more disciplined, and deadlier than any Roman army had been for generations. This is the force that we need to understand today. Let's just get through a few caveats before we get into the detail. The army that's described in the Preceptor is an ideal offensive force. What we hear about is a full-strength army of thousands and thousands of men. This is how Nicephorus would want things to be. But of course the Romans did not field this exact number and use these exact tactics each time they fought. This is just a template to give you an idea of how the army functioned. In fact, Nicephorus is fairly explicit in acknowledging that once battle kicks in, his control over his men will be minimal. That's why he's so keen to explain how things should function. If rigorous training and preparation are taken care of, then the army will have a much better chance of surviving the unexpected. Despite all the credit we're giving him, Nicephorus, of course, did not invent all the tactics we will discuss. They evolved over time, and doubtless John Corcuas had a big influence on things, as well as men before him. Also, Nicephorus restates a maxim that has been serving the Romans well for a thousand years. He says, make your plans based on what the enemy is doing. Never go into battle with a set formula and expect it to always work. And that's not just an old cliché. The force that we will describe was specifically designed to counter the army of Seifadola, to mirror them, outmaneuver, and crush them. The final piece of our introduction is to tell you more about Eric McGear. He's taught Byzantine history at Harvard and the University of Montreal. He's currently conducting research at the Dumbarton Oaks Library in Washington. He's actually helping to create an online catalogue of the nearly 17,000 lead seals in their collection. As I've mentioned on the podcast, many lead seals from Byzantine letters have survived, where the actual correspondence has long since decayed. This collection tells us a huge amount about Roman officials and the extent of government control in the borderlands, amongst many other things.
I started the interview by asking what kind of troops Nicephorus wanted for his ideal offensive force. And I think it's interesting to use the word ideal because uh, one thing I liked about these treatises is that they don't get into ideals too much or it becomes too remote from reality. I think reality and ideals tend to come a little closer in these treatises. So the, the force they're talking about is, is a very composite force. And what struck me very much is that it's an army of specialists that you have certain soldiers picked for their physical or other, you know, maybe their training or their experience to handle certain roles. So I think that's one thing to emphasize that it's a combined army of people who are assigned to do one task and do it very well, whether it's in the cavalry or in the infantry. Uh, the second thing to note is that uh, in the middle of the 10th century, there is the tendency to use the tagmatic, in other words, the, the, the regiment stationed in Constantinople to bring those out to the frontiers and station them there so that the army, uh, instead of being a kind of local and almost like a militia, is the heart of the Byzantine army taken out to the frontiers and kept there uh, for extended periods rather than returning to Constantinople. So that the, say, the, the professionalization, and that might be an anachronistic word, but I'm, I'm always impressed by that, by how um, carefully trained, how carefully recruited, uh, how well armed uh, those armies were. I think they were fairly small. I think you're probably talking about five to ten thousand at the at the at the most. But I think what they're depending on is a very select, very highly integrated uh, force of soldiers that works well together in all the combat scenarios that the tactical tactician or the tactical writers lay out. And so they're uh, not to make it. An unfair analogy, but I think sometimes if your listeners are familiar with American football or perhaps with with sports in which there are various roles given to various players at different times, I think that's almost what we're talking about here, that they're specialists. Immediately, we touch upon something that I haven't yet mentioned in the narrative, the Tachmata, the cavalry regiments who lived in and around Constantinople, have increasingly been stationed on the frontier. We have no details on when this started taking place, how many or where they went, but it wouldn't be a great stretch to imagine that John Corcuas's annual campaigning made it sensible to leave a corps of professional cavalry in eastern Anatolia. Over time, this move was made permanent, and we can assume that Nicephorus was an advocate for this change. In terms of specialization, the preceptor outlines the specific types of infantry and cavalry that should be recruited. It goes into detail on the armor they should wear, how they should be trained, and the specific roles they will be expected to perform. It then moves on to their formations and battle tactics. Let's begin with the infantry. Remember that the Romans don't really have professional foot soldiers anymore. The men who receive regular pay are all cavalry. Now, some of these soldiers may dismount to lead the infantry, but that's not really their full-time job. Infantry were recruited when needed. Nicephorus's armies often contained a large Armenian element performing this role, but also mercenaries from further afield and Byzantine peasants looking for a payday. Now, as you know, a big problem for Byzantine armies has been that men rout at the first sign of trouble. 
given that they were part-time soldiers. This isn't a big surprise. Nicephorus could not afford this now. A route a hundred miles from home was unthinkable. It could lead to the destruction of the whole army. So he had to find a way to shepherd these men through enemy territory. The solution was to essentially keep them in their camp formation at all times. And by this I mean their military camp. This was a giant square, with the general camped in the middle, surrounded by his retinue, then other cavalry camped around them in pre-ordered lines, and then the infantry, who pitched their tents on the outside of the square, uh, with clear, predictable lines, always in the same order, so that men could find their way around in the dark, no matter where they were. And this was essentially how the army was to set up for battle. The infantry would form a giant square, with all the baggage and camp followers in the middle. Each detachment of foot soldiers would leave a gap between them and the next unit, and in between these gaps, the cavalry could ride in and out of the square. The, the best descriptions uh, that we have of it, um, both uh, from the Byzantine and from the Arab sources, uh, refer to it as a walking fortress. And in other words, that you have the four human walls of the, of the square with the openings in each side so that the cavalry can pass in and out. But when they're on the march, they are able then to shelter the cavalry and the baggage and all of the other, uh, let's say, non-combatants uh, within that uh, human square and keep it going. Uh, as they proceed through enemy territory. So they never lose cohesion or they never break apart, at which point they would become very vulnerable to uh, enemy ambush or enemy attacks. And then uh, it becomes the army's preliminary tactical disposition because uh, when they make the expeditionary camp, uh, they simply set up in the same formation that they do as an infantry formation. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an all-purpose, secure, and uh, I think easily maintained formation uh, rather than a, in a long column or... Uh, formations which would not impose the same sort of coherence on, on an army operating beyond its borders. So I think security and discipline and the cohesion of that formation uh, recommended it to the, to the tacticians. And I think, too, the, the system they devised for it, being a kind of mobile base for cavalry, because if you've got cavalry going out and reconnoitering, uh, conducting raids or all the different things that cavalry can do given its mobility, there's always a safe place to come back to. So that uh, it answers a number of, uh, I think, important questions, both for infantrymen having to stay in formation and for cavalry having a base from which they can operate and retire to if, uh, if need be. This would provide a solid base for the whole army. It would give the cavalry a safe haven to retreat to, and it would simplify the thinking of the infantry. Anyone could understand their role in a square and it would make the men feel secure. They couldn't be attacked from the sides or the back, and they knew support was always nearby. Despite this apparent simplicity, the need for specialization comes in when these men eventually come under attack. Yes, and I think, uh, again, you see several gradations of infantrymen. You mean you've got the people called hoplites, the, the, the ancient Greek term was applied to the heavy infantry, uh, who are very well armed uh, and very heavily protected. Uh, you look through their panoply, um, their heads, their bodies, um, their lower legs, 
the size of the shields they carried. And it's clear to me that they had one role, which was to stand fast um, in a defensive formation. Uh, because these armies were operating beyond the Byzantine frontier, they had to be sure that they could form uh, a, a sort of a mobile base as they proceeded through uh, enemy territory. And so I think there's a, a reliance on heavy, uh, sturdy, solid infantry that will provide uh, a stable and uh, defensible position when operating in terrain that is not their own. And then you get into these soldiers called men of Lati, who are, um, it's an untranslatable term, but they appear to have carried a very heavy uh, weapon, like a pike, which was longer and thicker uh, than the average infantry spear. And it seems to me that, that what their job was to do was to make a, what the French would call a chevaux de frise, or a kind of a, a human palisade uh, against enemy cavalry. So you have this, uh, say, at the top of the line, heavy infantry and select infantrymen uh, who perform this task of making this unbreakable line of spearmen in the front of the formation. And then behind them, you have lightly armed soldiers who use slings or bows and arrows, uh, who might have lighter spears and so forth, who are very mobile, who can move around in battle rather than be uh, sort of locked into one place. And all of them have a specific role to play when the enemy attacks, and usually they're anticipating a cavalry attack. Um, it's quite interesting that it was more cavalry versus infantry than infantry versus infantry. Given that the professional troops were all cavalrymen, it remained their job to do most of the fighting. Nicephorus doesn't envisage using the infantry much in an offensive capacity. Their main job is to stand fast against attacks from the enemy cavalry. If the battle is going poorly and the Roman horsemen need to retreat, they will dart through the gaps into the infantry square. Inside, they will be safe from attack and out of the range of arrow fire. The infantry square becomes a human fortress for the cavalry. In this scenario, the foot soldiers are now tasked with facing down the enemy attack. Safe employed a variety of specialists himself. He had some Turkish horse archers, so they might be firing arrows. Uh, there were the Bedouin Arabs. They preferred hit-and-run tactics, and Nicephorus repeatedly warns not to chase them. And finally, Safe's own regular cavalry, armed with spears or lances, might charge at the square and attempt to break through. Hence the importance of heavy infantry, well-armed for such an event, and the Menevelati, the Byzantine pikemen, chosen from the tallest, strongest, and bravest, who would be tasked with actually facing the charging horses of the enemy head-on. This was when the part-time soldier was most likely to run for it, and this brings us to another benefit of the square formation. What's important there is that the formation itself, which I talk about, this square formation they use, uh, I think the, the, the principal reason why they chose that formation, it's very difficult to run away. And I think they, they pick formations in which, um, or, they, or they pick deployments, where flight is not an option. And I think with the, the square formation, uh, if the only place backwards is back into the formation itself and not you know, to an open rear area, I think there must also have been soldiers behind them uh, with their spears leveled to keep those guys in front. 
But I think the way the formation was designed uh, has as much to do with their ability to stand fast as whatever physical or moral courage they must have had. Um, but if you can imagine facing a cavalry charge uh, and seeing these guys bear down on you, and it's really a contest of will, who's going to give way first? I think you had to pick those men very carefully and have real incentives, both disciplinary and perhaps as a form of rewards, to make sure they did their jobs. So it's possible that in an ideal battle laid out here the infantry wouldn't actually do any fighting that if the cavalry can win the battle the infantry are staying behind and then they just advance slowly and and scoop up the rewards afterwards i i think so i think they designed the infantry formation to make it appear uh like a very formidable undertaking and i think uh, what I was very impressed by in the, in the treatises is, is the, the writer's recognition of risk assessment, shall we say, on the part of attacker and defender. And I think as long as the formations looked coherent and well-placed and solid and had no, you know, gave no sign of giving way, I think that was enough to convince most armies to keep their distance, at which point the cavalry could move out and deploy for the attack uh, while um, you know, the security of knowing there was a secure base for them to retire to. But a lot of it, I think, is the moral balance of the battle. And this is what Mickey Forrest Cass was very good at. It was intimidation. It was discipline. Uh, if his army looked like it knew what it was doing, that was half the battle right there. And the Arab sources talk about that. What a fearsome and, and well-disciplined and almost mechanical kind of army it looked like. And the, and the incredible effect that had on the morale both of the Byzantines themselves, which gave them confidence, but on the enemy that, who were deeply intimidated by this methodical and, and disciplined and very professional force operating against them to the point where they simply give up fighting against them. Nicephorus could not rely on this intimidation always working, though. In a worst-case scenario where the enemy charged at his square, he had reserves in place who could bolster the line that was being attacked. The slingers and javelin throwers would now move up to plug the gaps which had been left to allow the cavalry to enter the square. I've put up diagrams of this on the website. Yes, so that if the cavalry had retired through the gaps left in the formations into the center of, of the square, the infantry would then close those gaps and make a solid front across uh, any side of the square under attack. The front rows of the heavy infantrymen would then be reinforced by soldiers from the rear moving up into the front ranks. And what I was interested in is, is the change in tactics uh, that you find from one manual to the next. But the key point being they're trying to disguise the strength of that formation by making these alterations just before the enemy attacks. So you think there might be two or three heavy infantrymen in the front of the formation. By the time you get to them, there might be six or eight or ten. So that the, the system of reinforcing the front lines, I think, is uh, what would go into operation uh, to show the enemy that, in fact, they're attacking something much deeper and much uh, more thickly defended than at first it may have looked. And then, of course, uh, again, if, even if the ideals are, are um, not exaggerated, you might have anywhere between, let's say, 600 to 1,000 archers in that formation, shooting arrows at the enemy, which is must be, you know, you think of Azincourt, some of those battles with these clouds of arrows going out. I think the um, uh, combination of the, uh, the heavy defense in the front and then the shower of arrows that the enemy would have to move through must have defeated uh, the will of most attackers. You, know, you rarely hear of um, uh, 
uh, Arab cavalry prevailing over Byzantine infantry formation, whereas in the other um, other side of that, the Byzantines with these heavy cavalry, these cataphracty they talk about, uh, are um, are much more formidable. I think they developed that arm much more formidably than the Arabs did. Okay, well let's turn to the cavalry then. Um, what different types of cavalry were recruited for these campaigns? Yes, and again, you find this uh, interesting mix. Uh, for instance, uh, you have a kind of light cavalry. Uh, they're often called uh, procursatores in Greek, almost like skirmishers or scouts, you know, combining these roles. And they must have been recruited locally uh, in, the, in the furthermost realms of the empire because they knew the terrain. Uh, they spoke the different languages, uh, Armenian, Arabic, whatever it might have been. Uh, and they're often referred to as almost as specialists in their own right. Uh, they're recruited and named as uh, specialized scouts or, or uh, foragers, things like that. And then you get to the, uh, I think, the regular cavalry, um, which would have been the tagmatic units. These were the soldiers who were raised and recruited in Constantinople. They got the best of the best. Uh, they were the imperial regiments, so their loyalty to the emperor rather than to uh, a local lord or some strategos was um, not in question. Uh, they were regiments with very proud traditions. Um, you know, I, again, I, I use the word professional with, with some misgiving about a medieval army, but I think if anybody would have considered himself uh, a professional soldier, uh, it would have been one of these tagmatic um, uh, soldiers of the, uh, you know, the Hicanati or the Scolari, these people. Uh, who were stationed in the capital, had a great deal of prestige, and uh, who had you know, found the highest rung in the military hierarchy. And then uh, we find these soldiers called cataphracts. Um, and I tend to think that in the end, they were soldiers who could afford more equipment than the, than the guy next to them. Uh, I think that most of the cavalry were well armed and armored to begin with. I think you're talking about an extra layer or perhaps... Uh, uh, some additional weaponry, and I think, too, they probably chose the best uh, cavalrymen to form these uh, attack units that the, the cataphracti are described as. But one interesting thing I saw in the uh, sources was that um, most of the military officers had retinues. They had their own sort of followers around them. They might have had 50 or 60. And warfare was a way of life for these people. Horsemanship, handling weapons, um, that was their way up in the world. And I think out of that kind of local or um, personal retinue, they picked the guys who were the, um, the best horsemen, the best fighters, and put them in these elite units uh, because they could count on them. And so I think that the cataphracts were probably picked out of the various uh, tagmatic units or the, the retinues of some of the officers to form this elite attacking unit that was used as... Um, uh, the most formidable weapon in their arsenal. And, and the way that they talk about these cataphracts being lined up, the discipline, the methodical deployment that they were to, uh, to undergo as they, or to, to undertake as they deploy for battle, uh, very chilling to watch. And then to think these guys are coming at you with their maces, with their heavy swords and spears and proceeding in this very, methodical, very slow pace that picks up as it goes. Uh, I think you could only have that kind of attacking formation made out of soldiers who were uh, the, 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 the creme de la creme, as it were, that uh, these were the best of, of what the Byzantine army had, grouped and trained as this elite attacking unit. So again, you find the different layers and different roles in the cavalry with this 
sort of all-star cast that the cataphracts would have represented. Yes, the cataphracts, the Byzantine equivalent of the old Sassanid heavy cavalry. Nicephorus wanted to break Saif's armies, to destroy them. Saif had recruited many Dalamite infantry, hardy, mountain-born soldiers who would not easily abandon their posts. To shatter their nerve, he wanted cavalry who could produce maximum damage. We'll come back to them in a moment. For now, let's get back to the whole cavalry formation. Again, illustrations available online. Yes, and, and this is well articulated in the Byzantine tactical manuals. And again, we're talking about models. Um, what it was in reality, I'm sure, conformed in some degree to the model, but what strikes you is their flexibility. But what they were very interested in doing with the deployment of the cavalry force as a whole was to have it in lines of um, attack. So there'd be a forward line, and that's where the cataphracts would have been featured. They would have had flanking units on, on either side, to accompany them, protect their flanks, drive away the enemy cavalry trying to interrupt the uh, speed or direction of their advance. And then behind that line, you'd have three or four formations, which are called in Greek the voethia, which is almost like the uh, support line. And that's where the commander was. He was with the, the second line rather than with the first. And so he could then use these soldiers to intervene as he saw fit, either to reinforce a successful attack and conduct the pursuit, which was a very important part of their battle plan. Or if the guys in front had got into trouble, he would then have uh, a unit there either to shield or screen their retirement with soldiers in reserve then to resume an attack or then to make the best of a bad situation and uh, conduct an orderly retreat, which is also uh, part of their tactical vocabulary. You know, it doesn't go your way all the time. So you don't commit your entire force, you commit part of it. And if part of it is defeated, you still have the rest of them to come back and fight another day. And then behind the second line, they add a third line. And it's very interesting that they use an Arabic word for it. It's a saka in, in uh, the Greek terms. And that, in a sense, is a kind of a safety valve, that there are three or four formations behind the support line. And if things really go wrong, uh, then they're there to, uh, say, cover a retreat or form a kind of stand to let the army reassemble itself. But if things do go well, that's another force to commit to the pursuit, to carry the pursuit to its ultimate objective, which is the destruction of the enemy. So it's a very supple and um, it's a very interesting way that the Greeks describe it. They call it a manifold system. So it's more than the sum of one part. It's three or four lines, which the commander can use as he's watching from behind to send into the battle, uh, depending on the circumstances. And one thing I really like about those treatises is they're always talking about this, that the commander has to keep his eye on the situation and react accordingly. It's something he has to learn. It's hard to teach, but he has to learn that. And so we often find generals taking their sons or emperors taking their heirs apparent to watch battles to gain from that vantage point some idea of how to use these uh, formations in battle and when's the time to commit and when's the time to retire. And they designed the overall deployment of the cavalry to take all of these different uh, possible outcomes into account. So it's a very mature system in that way. Returning to the cataphracts then, as you probably know, these men wore strong helmets and were draped in chain mail. They wore lamella body armour and gauntlets. They carried maces along with their swords. Their horses were draped in armour too. 
one of Saif's court poets, describes seeing horses without legs and iron men riding on them. I've put up modern illustrations at the website too. A formation of these horsemen was intimidating to look at and extremely heavy and powerful when riding in unison. The ideal Byzantine battle would see their skirmishing and regular cavalry drive off the enemy horses, leaving Safe's infantry exposed. The cataphracts would then line up to attack them. They would go silent and share in a specific prayer before moving forward together in a wedge formation. Yes, uh, and they must have given this some thought because, again, you see very small changes or improvements in the way that this formation is described and how it's then sent into the attack. So it's not something they got right the first time. And in fact, the first time we hear of the cataphracts being used in a battle in 954, the Byzantine army was defeated so that they weren't an instant success. But when it worked, and there's a very good description of them in a battle outside Tarsus in 965, uh, now, if that can be relied upon and if it can be um, read along with the tactical treatises, what you would have is, let's say, a, a triangular uh, formation. It's kind of a blunt uh, point at the front, but you'd have about 10 or 15 rows of, of, of heavily cavalry in the front of it. Uh, and they would all be carrying very heavy weapons, maces, heavy swords. They'd be a kind of a battering ram. And then on the outsides of the formation, you'd have a mixture of spearmen, uh, you'd have uh, men with lighter swords or lighter weapons. So the idea being is that this blunt force object hits the enemy, disperses it, at which point the flanks advance, and they can fight at longer distance with lances or with, uh, with lighter weapons. But in the center of the formation are archers. And as, the, are, as they are closing in with the enemy, these archers, who might be 150 or 200, are sending this shower of missiles onto uh, the enemy formation, so that it's um, it's the aggregate of a few things: blunt force, lighter horsemen on the outside, and then escorted into the point of attack by volleys of arrows from these horse archers. And they're shielded on the flanks by skirmishers who keep away anybody who's trying to disrupt the momentum of the charge. So if it's going to work, everybody has to do his job uh, the, as he's trained for the the, the cataphracts, the the escorts, the archers. But in this description of the battle at Tarsus in 965, it seems to have worked almost like a synchronized Swiss clock. You know, they, they talk about the deployment. They talk about it being escorted to the target with showers of missiles preceding it. And it's very interesting how they talk about the effect on the enemy watching this come at them, that they were already giving way before the cataphracts got there. And I think that was the, the key thing, is that they were already broken in nerve before they were broken in body, so to speak. Uh, that they were already giving way when the attack reached them. I think that was the key to their success, was to intimidate them out of their position and, 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 and then break into an enemy that was already uh, broken up or, or giving way or, or thinking they'd rather be somewhere else that day. Uh, and then the um, battles that are described in the Balkans that John Sineskis fought against the Russians in 971, uh, there are descriptions in the Russian sources of uh, the effect of these soldiers on the morale of the soldiers watching them attack them, uh, that um, it was quite a spectacle and designed to be that. So I say all of these things, the morale of it, uh, the sight of them, their methodical means of attack, 
all the different pieces that went into a successful attack, and then, of course, the follow-up from the uh, successive waves of cavalry, that the cataphracts, you know, having achieved their objective, did not conduct the pursuit. They probably reformed and, and, and set up later, meaning that the successive waves of attack and the, in the different lines of attack I was talking about before could then carry on with the assault and make sure the pursuit did not flag or waver. You know, like make sure you beat them thoroughly instead of giving the enemy a chance to reform. So it was a, a very um, a very involved process. You think that army must have been highly, highly trained. And you get a sense of that from the descriptions of Nicky Forrest will cast when he's not on campaign, that every day he was training his soldiers in Constantinople, you know, daily training. So that I think when push came to shove, these guys were simply going through routines they'd rehearsed hundreds of times. Another vital instruction he imparted was for the cataphracts to not charge at full speed toward the enemy. They must ride at a steady pace in order to maintain their formation. If they sprinted and broke apart, then individual horses became easier to pick off. It was far better to stay together as one giant mechanical mass. Well, it was very, I think, important to keep cohesion. Because I think um, if they all sped up, then they all get out of sync. But I think if they proceed at what might be a canter rather than a gallop, there's still quite a bit of momentum behind that formation because you're talking about 500 men, maybe more. But that they all arrive at the point of impact as a cohesive unit rather than in ones or twos or threes. And I think that was the big disciplinary uh, challenge before full cast. And I think that's why before they attacked, they paused and they said a prayer to compose themselves, to concentrate, and then go into the attack moving as one unit, not as the aggregate of several hundred individual charges. Now, that's mind over matter. Uh, that, that takes incredible discipline. But that's what the sources seem to point at, is the way these guys, you almost think of a cobra transfixing its prey with its stare. It seems to me that's almost what we're talking about here, the deliberate intimidation by this methodical procedure. I think that's what did it for them. I know that cataphracts are of particular interest, so let's just spend a bit longer on them. Here is an actual quote from the preceptor on what Nicephorus hoped his heavy cavalry charge would achieve. With God lending us aid through the intercession of his Immaculate Mother, the enemy will be routed by this triangular formation of cataphracts. For the enemy's spears and pikes will be shattered by the cataphracts and their arrows will be ineffective. Whereupon, the cataphracts will smash in the heads and bodies of the enemy with their iron maces and sabres. They will break in and dismember their formations, and from there break through and so completely destroy them. It takes you back to the opening quote of our interview where Eric talked about the graphic violence which the text describes. In his book... Eric has a great description for the cataphracts, saying that they are like a projectile, which can only be thrown once at the enemy. Nicephorus has no expectation that his heavy cavalry will do anything but this one charge. He knows that once they hit the enemy, all will be chaos and bloodshed. If they succeed, then the enemy will run away, and the cataphracts are simply ordered to reform and 
head back to the square. If they fail, then they will be in the midst of heavy fighting. And ideally, the domestic would have a reserve of extra cataphracts to attempt to hurl against the enemy as a second wave. However, the text is pretty confident that this is an unlikely scenario. The actual numbers of cataphracts would have been very small. The armour required was extremely expensive. Out of, say, a 15,000 to 20,000 strong army, we might be talking about 500 cataphracts or less. That's in part why the wedge formation was so vital. The few true heavy cavalry would be front and centre. On the flanks would just be regular cavalry, holding lances and, behind them, the horse archers. Again, probably small in number. It was a devastating weapon, but a fragile one. As you heard a moment ago, flanking guards were required. The best way to stop a cataphract charge was to hit it from the sides before it reached you. These flanking units also helped keep the wedge formation together. It was very tempting for even a highly trained man not to want to ride directly into soldiers aiming spears and pikes at your body. But if riders started drifting outward, looking for gaps in the line, the loss of cohesion could destroy the effectiveness of the charge. While other writers might focus on the equipment and fearsome reputation of the cataphracts, Nicephorus knew that the most vital thing was their cohesion. It was these less commented on factors which really made the difference to him. Well, all the individual heroism, uh, I don't think mattered much to him. He, what, what's very interesting about Nicephorus Vocas, uh, nobody had a neutral opinion of him. But the people who admired him and his armies adored him, he was a severe disciplinarian. And the soldiers seemed to accept that, that he was the bringer of victory. I mean, his name in Greek is a pun on that. He's the the one who delivers victories. And the acclamations that we hear of him, you know, the white death of the Saracens, uh, the bringer of victory. I think people were willing to submit themselves to that kind of discipline because he was uh, the kind of leader or the kind of general who imposed his own personality on his army. And he had fought in those battles. He wasn't one to sort of point and say, go there. He himself, as had John Simiskees, they'd been in the thick of it. They knew what it was like to be hammering away in a crowd of people in this you know, terrible melee that those battles must have turned into. So his own personal courage, uh, his uh, severe and very ascetic kind of discipline, Uh, which didn't endear him to the citizens of Constantinople, but certainly endeared him to his army. Uh, I think that's why they would have followed him to the ends of the earth. And so it's it's a strange, um, uh, it seems ironic in our view, uh, where we think of professional soldiers today in a modern army. But I think in in their times, the the, the personality of the commander mattered a great deal. And so this is why Foucault, Simiskees, Basil II, had the success they did, because I think the soldiers had a, a firm belief that if they did as they were told, they would be victorious. And that's not true of other uh, commanders or other, other, or other times uh, when armies dissolve because of the lack of a firm hand or lack of the soldiers' regard for whoever is in charge. I think Foucault, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what he was like on tactics. We don't really get that much you know, with the X's and O's or the chessboard or things like that. But I think as a disciplinarian and as a charismatic leader, and as the 
personification of the will to victory, if I can put it that way. I think his soldiers had complete and utter sense, you know, sincere belief that if they did as he told them to do, uh, they would win every time. And they did. They did. One final piece of information about the heavy cavalry charge is that it was ideally to be aimed directly at the enemy commander's position. Absolutely. And uh, I think that the one thing that, uh, you know, a Foucault or Sinistees would have looked for is where is the enemy commander? And as they say, go straight for him and in a way decapitate the enemy. And if you've, if you've driven away uh, the enemy commander or if you've uh, driven away his retinue, then that is that. I, I, in all the accounts of battles that I've read from the Byzantine era, you never hear of an army rallying and, and, and pulling something out of the fire if the commander has been killed or driven away. That is, that is it. That's the Achilles heel of all those armies. And I think that's why Foucault and Simiskis and his contemporaries took great care to put around themselves a faithful retinue of soldiers, maybe 100, 200 strong, that would fight to the death around him. And I think that's why they kept themselves out of the main engagement as far as possible to make sure that this vital link that held it all together didn't get broken. Uh, that um, there's a lot of psychology in it. And I think the, um, uh, the idea of, of a death blow to the enemy, destroy their commander and make sure you pursue them until there's not one of them left standing, which we hear about in some battles where they massacred the enemy to the last man, uh, that they meant business and everybody knew it. So that, um, say, the projection of that kind of discipline, the personification of that kind of discipline, and the, as I say, the, the belief in the soldiers that uh, these were commanders whose reputations, whose uh, presence on the battlefield was 50% of the issue right there. There is, of course, so much more we could have talked about, and hopefully we will cover most of it in the narrative. However, one last point that Nicephorus makes repeatedly is that he doesn't want his men breaking ranks in order to pillage the enemy camp. This is vital, because remember, they will be deep inside Arab territory. And he knows that men who begin gathering loot have basically stopped being soldiers. They are now looking out for themselves, and if the Arabs regroup, they could return and rout the whole army. Again, this might just seem like common sense, but it's very specific to this situation. The Bedouin Arabs had a well-won reputation for luring troops away from battle to pounce on them. Many times they had seemingly been driven off before appearing out of nowhere and falling on unsuspecting Romans. Nicephorus ordered specific cavalry detachments to chase them away and keep an eye on them until they could be sure they were gone. Similar instructions were given on the pursuit of the enemy, the domestic badly wanted to pursue the fleeing troops who his army had broken, but he couldn't afford to see his men lose cohesion. Again, they are in a foreign land. They must stay together. They can only pursue when they have completed their specific tasks. And then the looting. We have to remember that for many of these soldiers, going on campaign was a huge gamble. It could be the end of their lives or it could be the moment they made their fortune. The extremes of emotion they experienced are beyond what most of us can relate to. 
Having stood, shaking with fear, an infantry unit would be transformed if they saw the cataphracts succeed and drive off the enemy. Now they would become obsessed with reaching the enemy camp and grabbing what they could. This was the equivalent of the malfunctioning ATM machine just pumping out notes. To acquire money, jewellery, armour, silk or slaves could transform your whole life. This was your ticket out of poverty, and there were a thousand of your comrades right next to you, all trying to grab their opportunity at the same time. Nicephorus knew that the temptation was overwhelming, and so insisted that his commanders lay out the punishments for premature looting in advance. Presumably, deals were also put in place for the equitable division of spoils, but he knew that no one would patiently stand by if given the opportunity to get something extra. Again, discipline in a moment like this could make or break the whole campaign. Hence, his attention to it in the preceptor. In its pages, Nicephorus uses the phrase, in good order, or its equivalent, 20 times. Well, I think we're going to have to point listeners to the book to find out more and uh, to get more details and to understand how how things changed over time and adapted. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the uh, podcast. You're welcome. And I, I might say to your listeners too, Robin, that the, the Men at Arms uh, series and Osprey often have very good depictions of armor, of weapons, and of battle scenarios. Some of their artists are very good in, in recreating the scenarios that are talked about in these treatises so that anyone, I think, trying to get a, a glimpse of, of what it might have looked like and what those soldiers were using would find those to be a very good source of, uh, of information. Join me next time as Nicephorus Focus takes charge of the Army of the East and puts his new tactics into practice.